Yeah, the packets on the back table. If you walked by that and you were like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that, please have something to do with it. <laughs> please go grab yourself one. Um, that is something that I'll probably refer back to because today we're starting um, a series on Ephesians. And we're going to um, be going through that for the next several weeks. And I'll probably refer back to this packet. It's just a really great um, teaching resource um, that helped me a lot as I worked my way through the book. But reactions I've gotten to it from people so far have been like, this kind of looks like homework, or this is a little intimidating. I know that it's different to have a printout that goes along with the teaching on Sunday. We don't usually do that. So it's new, but new is okay. And my goal is never for anyone to feel intimidated or condemned because they don't understand something. What I always want to do is equip you and challenge you, though. It's okay to feel challenged and a little uncomfortable. That's where we can come together and sort it out together, and uh, we can grow together. So that's a good thing. Um, I'm just going to explain some real basics on this packet. But I think if you sit with it for 10 minutes or so, you'll be able to see how it works. Um, just some quick pointers on the first page. So what's happening here is he's just trying to show you a flow of thought. A lot of the sentences in Ephesians and the New Testament letters are really long, and they're packed with theology and ideas and details. And sometimes by the time you get to the end of a sentence, you've lost track of where it started, where it began, and it might be a little difficult to understand. I know at times, there's been times where I've read portions of scripture, and I'm like, what did I just read? Or what was that paragraph even about? This is an attempt to help you follow the thought. So all it's doing is breaking it into chunks that are all related to each other. It's underlining um, some main ideas, and it's highlighting things that belong together. So you'll see um, here in the beginning, we are blessed. Um, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Messiah, who has blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit. So he has blessed us. How is that related to these other things? What has he blessed us with? He's blessed us in that he's chosen us. He's predestined us for adoption into sonship. He's graced us, and he's made his grace abundant for us, and he's made known to us wisdom and understanding. Those things are all highlighted in the same color because they belong together. Another theme here you'll see is this color that is highlighted through the Messiah. How do all these blessings come to us as the people of God? They come through the Messiah. He chose us in him through Jesus Messiah. It's in Jesus Messiah that we have redemption. So you can just look at this highlighting and look at the progression of thought and see that in this first chunk here, we're really blessed. How do we come into blessing? It is through Jesus Messiah. You can see where the emphasis is being placed. Um, and then there's some things in the back of this packet. There's a diagram that we'll get into a little more later today and um, later on in the series. And then last is an outline that breaks the book down into basically how we'll be talking about it on the next several Sundays. So this is a resource for you. If you have any questions at all, or if you feel confused or overwhelmed, please come talk to me. That's how we grow together. 
there's still things about this that I'm trying to figure out, but I found it fascinating and challenging and something that helps me follow all the flows of thought that are in Ephesians. So please come talk to me if you have any issues with it. All right. So before we even get into the book of Ephesians itself, I felt like today we needed to talk about context. Um, why do we need to talk about context? Because context is your friend. Context is a good thing. It's going to help you understand anything that you read in the Bible on a deeper level. It's going to open up things and give you a greater appreciation for everything you read in the Word. Um, there's a misconception, I feel, about understanding context, and that is that if we understand the context and the situations around biblical letters and stories, that then that lesson is locked in the past, like it only applies to that situation. But that is not true. What context does for us is it shows us how not to apply scripture in our current context. It protects us from abusing and misusing scripture for our own purposes. It shows us how to rightly apply it in our modern context. So doesn't lock it up in the past. It shows us how do we live this out today. It gives us a point to start from. And when it comes to the uh, New Testament letters, it's a little more difficult for us to remember that we really need context in the New Testament. By the time you reach the New Testament letters, you've been through a lot of the Old Testament and you've read some kind of weird and challenging stuff. <laughs> it's, easy for, it's easier for us as we're reading about talking animals and a prophet lying on his side for 390 days and laws of the Levitical priesthood. It's easy for us to feel foreign to that material. So when we want to understand it, it's more natural for us to seek out other resources to try to grasp what is this saying to me today. When we get to the New Testament letters, they automatically feel more relatable. They feel more like straightforward and um, that they can apply directly into our context right now. And they are very relevant for us right now, but we do have to look into that and remember that the letters are written from a person to people 2,000-ish years ago. And so there's levels that are happening that we need to understand in all of that. And uh, another thing about the letters is that uh, there's a lot of easily repeatable sound bites in the New Testament letters, like a lot of tweetable um, little nuggets, and they seem to require no knowledge of context whatsoever to apply. They seem to just be really easy and straightforward. Um, and it's easy to make those mean whatever we want if we don't look into context. So here is a great example for today. First John 4, 7. Uh, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Stop for a second and think about the millions of ways that is taken out of context today. Have you ever heard of like love wins? Real love matters. Love whoever you want. It's real easy to take one tiny portion of scripture and make it a slogan for whatever your movement is. And we want to protect ourselves from that. When we exclude context, we can easily end up with what's called the pick and choose method. 
for what we apply to our lives today from the letters. Um, Here are a few examples that represent a problem with a direct, literal interpretation of Scripture. So 1 Timothy 5.23, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So just taking that out of context, am I supposed to interpret that wine is the cure for stomach problems? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? What about the Nazarites in the Old Testament that had a long hair because they took a vow before the Lord? And actually, even in the New Testament, in Acts 18.18, we learn that Paul had grown out his hair because he took a vow before the Lord. So what about those things? And this can go on and on and on. Um, Greeting with a holy kiss. Why don't we do that? Slaves being told to obey their masters, while Galatians tells us that there's neither slave nor free. What's going on with that? Head coverings, braided hair, jewelry, like... There's a lot of things that we encounter in the New Testament letters that really need context. And if we're not going to end up in the pick and choose. Um, And certain Christian traditions, they'll choose to enforce some of them and not enforce others. And I feel like this quote sums up this situation. It's it's so good. Um, It says, fundamentalists, charismatics, social activists, Feminists, evangelicals, traditionalists, liberationists, all of us, in fact, go to the texts of the Bible and return with trophies that are replicas of our own theological image. It is no easy task, genuinely, to listen to the voice of Scripture rather than merely to hear the sound of our own echoes. We don't go to Scripture and look for a mascot for what we want to root for. We can't do that. That's irresponsible. It's a poor representation of the Lord and his word. So um, it's a serious situation. Um, We shouldn't take him lightly or his word lightly. And uh, we can't know everything. Trust me, I feel the pressure of that to know everything. But we can't always know everything. We can do the best we can to understand what the word is actually saying. All right, so... We'll actually get into four types of context today to apply to New Testament letters. And um, I'm talking about this, generally speaking, um, not just for Ephesians, though we're going to use all of these to a certain extent as we work our way through the book. Um, You can apply these to all the letters. So this is more of a general discussion of these four types of context. So that would be narrative context. Where does this letter fit? into the larger context of the biblical story, the cultural context. What was the popular culture of the time and place in which this letter was written? The situational context? Was there a specific situation the letter was addressing? And if so, what details are present? In the literary context, how was this letter constructed, both physically and compositionally? That one has to do with the physical letter you hold in your hand. How did that thing come into being? And then how is it composed in terms of literary design? So we'll start with narrative context. Where does this letter fit into the larger context of the biblical story? So on a really large scale, we can divide the Bible into three major themes. The image of God, the family of Abraham, and the Messiah. Starting with the image, 
God creates humans with the intention that they are going to rule in partnership with him. Adam and Eve are created in God's own image, and they're commissioned to be fruitful, to rule over the world, and to subdue it. And at the fall, the need for restoration and redemption for all of creation begins. So the wait begins for the redemption of all things. Fast forward to the next theme, the family of Abraham. So God selects, he chooses Abraham and his family, and he says to him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. So fast forward to Israel does become a nation, and God hones it in even further, and he chooses the line of David. And he says of this that he's going to raise up a seed from the line of David, and he's going to establish his kingdom and his throne forever. And the seed is Jesus, the messianic servant, Jesus, the one to come. And God says of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you can see that God's plan is that through Jesus to offer salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all of humanity, to bring them back. So going into the third theme, the Messiah, Um, Jesus, through him comes the new covenant. The people of the new covenant are marked by God's spirit dwelling inside of them, and they're transformed so that they could love God and neighbor, so that they can obey God's righteous decrees. These three biblical themes, they converge. They all come together in Jesus. And uh, he's the redeemer of all creation. Jesus commissions the apostles to take the good news of his life, his death, and his resurrection to the nation of Israel and then out to the Gentiles. And he equips them with the Holy Spirit. So the apostles, they become heralds. They herald the news that the kingdom of God has drawn near and um, that redemption comes through Jesus for whosoever will believe and that there is going to be an ultimate fulfillment in the future of new creation. And the letters that the apostles wrote are part of this heralding that they did. So the bottom line for narrative context when it comes to the New Testament letters is that those letters are part of the unified story of the Bible. So our interpretations of what they say should not be an obvious conflict with the entire council of the rest of the Bible. Um, There may be some things that we have to wrestle with, and figure out. I mean, that's like the story of our lives, right? (laughs) That's the story of learning. But there shouldn't be anything that it obviously contradicts the, uh, the counsel of the rest of scripture. So that is narrative context. The next one that we'll talk about is cultural context. What was the popular culture of the time and place in which this letter was written? The Jesus movement started in Jerusalem and spread from there into the wider Greco-Roman world. Jewish culture and the culture of the Roman Empire play a part in every one of the New Testament letters. Um, There's a couple ways that I'd like to point this out and demonstrate this for you today. Uh, First of all, we've got Jewish culture. Um, We do not have a grid for being upset about whether or not someone is circumcised. It is not a struggle for us to come together and eat at the same table in spite of our backgrounds and even our 
the little differences in our belief, um, we can all come together and be unified. Like that's just not a thing for us. But it's so frequently addressed in the New Testament letters. And uh, these are really big issues for them. So understanding Jewish ceremonial laws about washing and purification and food, if you understand a bit of that context, it makes all of that stuff in the New Testament make sense. And it teaches us today important lessons about grace, about freedom in Christ, and about the pitfalls of self-righteousness, which is something that we all should be on our, our guard against, the yeast of the Pharisees, right? We don't want to be righteous in our own eyes. Um, the second thing I'd like to talk about, more in regards to the Roman Empire, but this also applies to Jewish culture, um, is uh, honor and shame culture. So as I looked into this, I was just totally fascinated by how different um, our culture is today from a culture like this. Let me give you a basic rundown of how this works. In an honor and shame culture, you have some attributes, some behaviors that are honorable, and you have some that are shameful. And some of these attributes come by chance. They come by how you're born, what gender you're born into, uh, what social class and wealth status, what family you're born into. You have no choice in those things, but they still bring honor or shame. Then there are other uh, attributes that can be attained, like how pious are you? How good are you at worshiping the gods and living that out? How uh, much courage do you have? How reliable of a person are you? Those are all attainable attributes that would give you honor. And honor differs according to some of those unchangeable things. So say that you're born poor and someone else is born wealthy, but you're both really pious. Well, the wealthy person is automatically going to be assigned more honor than the poor person. Same thing with men and women. Um, they'll just automatically be assigned more honor. There's no way to make up that gap is what I'm getting at. Everybody's kind of locked into their station. And that is because there's a group of elites at the top of a community like this, and they're the ones that determine the practices and the behaviors that are desirable, that are honorable. And they determine the behaviors and the attributes that are shameful. And the identity, the whole identity of the community is dependent upon the identity of the individual. So if you're a community that has a whole bunch of thieves, well then your community is really crummy and you don't want to be known for that. So there's a lot of favoring certain things and punishing other things. This is the kind of culture that makes an example of everything and everyone. So say that you're a thief. We're going to crucify you. We're going to kill you publicly in the most painful and horrible way possible to show everyone else, do not bring this community down. Do not bring shame on this community. This is an attribute you do not want. Um, and this was the kind of culture um, that was present in first century Roman Empire. So there's a lot writing on having these right behaviors. There's a lot of examples being made of people. Um, Self-esteem would have been like such a big joke to these people. They would have been like, what? You, you're trying to say you can determine your own value based on what you think you're capable of? No, that's not how it works. It's, it's not America. The group assigns you your honor. They assign you your identity, and that's it. 
you are not changing your station in your lifetime. <laughs> You're not going from the bottom to the top. Um, it's, it's a totally different grid than the one that we live in today. And um, it plays such a big part in the hierarchical nature of their society. Um, so when you put this, when you put the first century believers into this kind of culture, it gives you a different view of what they were going through. So Jesus, in that culture, he was crucified as a criminal, as an enemy of the Roman state. In the flesh, in the world, it was an extremely shameful thing, what he went through and what they did to him. So for these first century believers um, to join this persecuted religious minority, to essentially follow a criminal, was a tremendous surrender of their honor. Um, whatever honor they had been assigned, they completely gave up. They surrendered their entire public and community identity to become believers in Jesus. Um, they were really following after him because we know Jesus surrendered his honor for humility at every turn. He washed feet. He ministered to prostitutes. He um, healed the lepers and he cleansed people. He talked to the Samaritan woman. He did all of these things. So I think first century believers had a real depth of understanding of what it was to take up their cross and to follow after him, to surrender the honor that you would be insane to give up in the flesh. I mean, you couldn't really gain much more of it. So to give away what you had come by naturally would just be, it would be ludicrous. And so ideas like he who is first shall be last and he who is last shall be first were like real groundbreaking uh, because that's just not how things worked. He who is first is first. <laughs> that's, that's how it worked for them. And in our culture, we recognize the value of servanthood and of self-sacrifice. Things are just different for us. And um, there's so many ways that, you know, as you ponder that kind of culture, and what it was like for them to live in that, that um, it deepens your understanding of what they went through and what it means for us to let go of our old identity and take up our new identity in Jesus. So the bottom line with the uh, cultural context is an understanding it in each letter. It just deepens our understanding of what the New Testament writers were trying to communicate about how to live life as a believer in Jesus. So the next one that we'll talk about is situational context. <clears throat> was there a specific situation that the um, letter was addressing? And if so, what details are present? This is the kind of context that provides the backstory of occasion, purpose, and motivation for um, one of the letters. Interestingly, there is not a situational specific thing in Ephesians. Um, there's probably a reason for that that we'll get more into as we talk about the book. But for most New Testament letters, there is. Um, most of them are prompted in response to a specific circumstance taking place in a specific place. When that happens, we're essentially reading one side of the communication. We have to keep in mind that, like I said before, this is from a person to a group of people, and they have a shared history that we are not 
a part of, that there's elements of which we don't know about. So we have to do our best to kind of piece together what the situation was to better understand what the scripture is telling us. So we can develop a few skills. We can do a couple of things to help us do this. One thing you can do is to read the letter all at once. So sit down with a letter, you know, pick a short one <laughs> to get started and read it all at one time. And in doing that, you'll get a better idea of the overall unified um, idea of the letter and what its purpose was. Uh, better yet, these letters were written to be read aloud. And um, it's, so, it's a great idea to listen to it. Sit down and listen to it all at once. As you do that, listen and look for explicit statements of the letter's purpose or the situation that motivated the writer to send the letter. So Galatians has a lot of great examples of situational context. They're fairly easy to recognize. Starting right here in chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's a situation. People were listening to teaching that was basically representing a gospel that was false. And so we can see, all right, Paul is going to address the situation. He's going to elaborate on how they should handle this, which he does. He goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So Paul's going there. to He's heard about this situation, and he's going to the people that he knows are legit. And... He's sharing like the real unwatered down, untainted gospel. And this is what he finds out. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So there was this other group that had snuck into this church that were trying to bring the believers back into bondage to Jewish laws like circumcision, and telling them that they couldn't be a part of God's kingdom unless they obeyed all of those things. He goes on in verses 11 through 14, continues to elaborate on the situation. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Like that's a really forceful sentence. That's a forceful statement. So it's telling us, continues to elaborate, something really important is happening here. This is the purpose of the letter. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. This is underlined because you're seeing a theme. It's this theme of circumcision, the circumcision group, this group of people that came that were false brethren that crept in. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So you can see the connection here in verse 14. Um, you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. See the connection between the issue of circumcision and the true gospel and the false gospel. 
It all comes together as you look for that context in the letter. So going on, um, he says, So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So he's saying here, hey, all of those things that defined you before, stop depending on those. You're all one in Christ Jesus, and it's according to the promise. You're an heir according to the promise, not according to the flesh. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So if you think that the statement, mark my words, stands out here, you would be correct. Um, This is rendered, behold, in the King James. And it's, this is the only point in Paul's writing that he uses it. There's another place that is similar in Romans, and interestingly, it's also related to people taking on circumcision. So uh, this is rendered in other translations as listen, or I, Paul, say unto you. And here, I like this, mark my words. And it, it being only used here in Paul's writing, it just shows the seriousness with problem that Paul's coming up against it. Someone is adding things to salvation other than faith. And that is, he's, he's not having any of that. Um, it's a big deal. So he's really forceful. So like I said, Galatians is a little more simple to identify the situational context. Some of the other letters are not low hanging fruit. They are not um, quite as easy. One of those is first Corinthians. Uh, first of all, 1 Corinthians is long, and it addresses more than one situation. So there's transitions between different ideas in different situations. There's different discussions all in one letter. So we'll just look at a couple of things that point out that something was going on. Verses 10 through 12. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So I could have underlined this entire thing because it all shows these people have a problem with division. They're falling back into bondage to division. They're following after people and um, letting themselves uh, get into these quarrels based on their own personal preferences. So Paul, we can say around that, Paul's going to be addressing division and stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, Other parts in the letter, he addresses other situations. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is still 1 Corinthians It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So, he's confronting a problem that's present in the Corinthian church. 
So around this, we're going to know that that's what he's talking about. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is an interesting one because we can see that the church wrote to Paul about maybe something they were discussing, maybe something they didn't totally understand. So they're writing to him and asking for his response on it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to give you some information on what my direction is about what you're struggling with on that. Um, In that same letter, he goes on to specifically address things like uh, food sacrificed to idols and what they should do about that and about the things of the spirit in their meetings and how to address those things. Lots in 1 Corinthians. So let's go on to our last element of context, which is the literary context, the construction of the letter itself, both physically and compositionally. How did this letter come to be? Um, and there's, this is an exercise I like to do that I kind of did with myself. It took a second to think, how do I picture Paul writing his letters? This is what it looked like for me. I think of Paul in a study, like at night, by himself, with a candle, and a pen that didn't exist, <laughs> and a scroll of paper. And he's sitting down to hear from the Lord by himself, And he composes his entire letter by his own hand in one sitting and folds it up and send it. That's wrong. (laughs) If if that's the way that you picture it, that is, that's incorrect. I can see how much of my modern context I've inserted into the idea of how these letters were composed, uh, because that is not how they were composed. We actually know a lot about first century letter writing, not just um, the New Testament writers, but how it was generally in the culture in the first century. So the first thing is there are often co-senders listed in Paul's letters at the beginning and the greeting. Sometimes he'll list other people. So when that's the case, uh, the material in the letter, some of it is Paul's and some of it is not. Um, We'll see names like Sosthenes as co-senders and Timothy. Um, I think there's some others as well. Um, These letters were definitely not composed in one sitting, Um, not even close. Paul's letters would have been created over weeks or months in stages. Um, In in the cases where there was a co-sender, they would have been composed in conjunction with those people. Um, The pre-existing material is actually really interesting. Writers and teachers in the first century carried notebooks that were made of wax tablets that were built into wooden frames, and sometimes they also carried parchment scrolls. Um, They would carry these with them on their travels, and they would write down ideas and snippets over time. This formed a collection of materials that they would employ in many different contexts. So they were constantly building their library of material that they would use to uh, minister and to teach people. And Paul's letters contain a lot of this preformed material. Um, this, he had material that was pulled from Old Testament passages, early Christian hymns, teaching tra- traditions, and previously formed sermon material. Um, we can see a lot of uh, similarities between Ephesians and Colossians, and those that's a great example of Paul using preform material. And uh, pre-existing material was also interwoven with material addressing specific situations in certain locations. 
Um, I came across a great quote on this that I found to be so encouraging about how Paul wrote his letters. It's from Randolph Richards in a book called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. Ancient letters, ancient letter writers, composed material in the midst of daily life. Paul would certainly take opportunities afforded by a few days stopover in a town to write and work on his letters. Paul preached in synagogues and in the market. He no doubt spoke to guests after dinner in the homes where he was hosted. He debated and discussed material with his team as they walked along the road or aboard a ship. All of these occasions gave opportunities for Paul to write notes and hone material. It is reasonable that Paul, like other ancient letter writers, was always in the process of composing, editing, and polishing material as he traveled and ministered. I find that so encouraging because Paul didn't put God in a compartment. God didn't just live in the study with all of Paul's books where, you know, he would go to the secret place and candlelight and write out this whole thing. And it was like had this mystical thing to it. God was a part of Paul's lived experience. And he didn't live a life that's dissimilar to the lives that we live. He worked and he was in the marketplace and he had friends that he worked with. And like Tab and I will drive sometimes for something and we'll talk and discuss things. And sometimes I'll receive revelation from the Lord as I process things to her. And sometimes I'll use it in sermons. And I just feel like it's so encouraging to know that um, you don't have to become like some sort of monk and retreat to a monastery to hear from the Lord and for him to uh, use you in ministry. He is a part of our lived experience. You can hear from him at any time, and that should be encouraging to us. You know, we should live our lives open to whatever it is he wants to say through our circumstances at any time, because he's so capable of that. So the use of secretaries. Um, Letters were often composed using a secretary. This was a specialized skill set, and it was a paid service. Sometimes the apostles knew the secretary, like Tertius in Romans or Silvanus in 1 Peter. Um, They would take many kinds of dictation, and even sometimes they would compose letters for the sender based on the ideas of the sender. And Paul's letters show a variety of these different kinds of practices. Uh, Paul built a collection of his letters. He would have retained personal copies of his letters, and it's plausible that the first publication of sets of Paul's letters came from that collection that he had built himself. Um, First century letters, they were expensive. So again, it's not the same as you picking up a piece of paper and getting a pen and buying a stamp for however much they cost now and sending it away. Um, They were really expensive. It was a big investment. And Paul's letters for the time were really, really long. His contemporaries wrote letters much, much shorter than what Paul wrote. Let's see, what did I have in here? Oh, this is particularly true of Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In today's money, uh, 1st Corinthians would cost $3,400 to compose and send. And to me, that just shows the immense importance that Paul and the church put on getting out this information and um, helping the house churches to grow in their lives in the Lord. And letter carriers, they played an important role in the letter. Um, They would serve to deliver the letter and they would read it aloud to the recipients. A lot of people didn't read 
So that's how they encountered the letter, was it was read to them. And uh, this person would also answer questions, and they would explain difficult parts of the letter based on knowledge of the sender. And several of them are named um, in the New Testament letters. So uh, that's the basic of, like, how was this letter constructed? How did it come into being? And there's another element of literary context. How is this letter composed? How is it designed? And what does the composition tell us about the author's point? This is a form of context that was really new to me until recently, and it is cool to look into. Like, these letters are beautiful. There is so much care and thought put into these communications that it goes missed so frequently. And um, that's why I really like this diagram that is in the back of your packet that we'll look at here in a moment. Um, so to look at the, this kind of literary context, there's a few things you can do. You can break the letter into main paragraphs or ideas. This is essentially what Bible translators do for us. Um, they're trying to add context by breaking the letter into chapters and numbering them and putting verse numbers and putting headings. Um, they're trying to break it into ideas because that is not the way it was when it was written as the letter, right? But I think it's valuable for us to do this for ourselves too. Like if you want to get into more study, you can always get um, a letter that doesn't have the chapter numbers and the verse numbers and all that and go through it yourself and find where their main ideas are and the main sections and break it up yourself. It, it's just a good exercise and it'll help you to better understand all the main points of the letter. So you can do that. And then identify the main points of the opening paragraph. The author of the letter will often pack a lot of the ideas and themes that he wants to expound upon right in the first paragraph of the letter. And then look for repeated words and ideas in the following paragraphs to find the main ideas. Um, we did a little of that, like the false gospel, the true gospel, circumcision. These are repeated words and themes. When you see that sort of repetition, you can know that the author is making a point about that thing. And then you can find how paragraphs relate to each other by looking for connectors. Words like therefore, so then, for this reason, as for you, etc. That is why I really like this design graphic that is in the back of your packet. Essentially, that's what they've done. They've broken um, the book down into the, the letter, down into these main themes. Um, and they've broken it into chunks of verses to show you what one movement is about and how it relates to the other movements. And then you can see how each movement progresses to the pinnacle of the letter, which is right here, the Messianic Victory Monument, the new temple, which is us, the church. Like that's the crowning jewel of the letter of Ephesians is the church. And uh, it shows you how the letter builds on itself and reinforces ideas that it presents. And then in the center of the letter, I love how it's divided in half. Chapters one through three build a foundation for power for us to live as believers. And chapters four through six are very practical. They tell us how to walk out and live in that power. Um, and the whole book is divided by this giant therefore. 
it's just, it's like really neat um, how beautiful the symmetry is and how much thought and care was put into communicating to us about what Jesus did, who he is, who we are, and how we should live because of that. Like, it, it, it's just really exciting. There's so many beautiful illustrations. There's poetry. There's metaphor. The, the depth of the communication is immense. And so to sit with it and really go through it and try to understand it is like a journey. And um, it's something that is so worth doing. And that it just is very exciting to look at these letters and really get down into them. So that's what we're going to try to do. Just work our way through little by little every week. And I think next week we'll actually start talking about the first verse. So that's exciting. Um, But for now, let's see. I think that that is all I have for today. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you that, Lord, you have chosen to work through people um, in spite of how frail we are. (laughs) You choose to work through us. You chose to speak through these people, Lord. And um, it really is a beautiful thing. I thank you that we have a lifetime to grow with you and to understand and read your word and to grow from it. I thank you for the opportunity to do that and the freedom to do that, Lord. I pray that you would bring it alive to us as we go through, that it wouldn't just be words on a page, Lord, but that it would be a lesson that applies to our lives today. Lord, that it would transform us and that it would make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.